Hello and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by my longtime friend and fraternity brother, Alex Blunk. In this episode, we talk about our love for music, his new business, Mother Nature, experimenting with psychedelic mushrooms, and the future of virtual reality. Next, we talk about Bruce Lipton, who's challenged widely accepted views of conventional science, as well as how Darwin's theory of evolution became famous so quickly back in the day to justify European imperialism and power structures. No further from our experiences in present day, we talk about the rapid changes we're currently experiencing because of technology, VR, robots, artificial intelligence, and how we can adapt to these changes. We then talk about the huge inequality gap in wealth distribution, making it difficult for ordinary people and small businesses to compete and break out of the poverty cycle. We end the discussion on the integrity of technology and whether the U.S. is as free as it is portrayed to be. Outros available for this and all episodes at entangledpodcast.substack.com. Please enjoy. Without further ado, Alex, why don't you tell the folks about yourself? Yeah, you know, and Jordan, you know, I think we'll always generally be linked by, you know, our, our, our music tastes. I think that, you know, early on, especially in college, you you introduced me to, uh, you know, a lot of just incredible hip hop groups, namely The Roots. I can, you know, always give you credit for introducing me to the, the gentleman of Questlove and, uh, you know, Common, most definitely can't, can't thank you enough. And, it's been uh, been fun to you know progress in our our, our friendship and uh, you know now we're just kind of looking out for for UAPs and you know thinking about how mycelium you know travels through the through the ground so <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah so you know I think a little bit of background on myself you know, I grew up in Colorado and a little bit in, in mainly Chicagoland. Pretty fairly, you know, fairly nuclear supportive family, uh, you know, lots of lots of baseball, playing the trumpet, lots of free time to kind of tinker and mess around with you know, everything really mechanical. Like you said, we're uh, we're educated down at the fine college of IU. I was in a consulting track, um, but largely just kind of fell into early stage startups early on, at least from a professional sense. This is kind of my background. It's kind of funny when you think about you know, how people describe, uh, you know, themselves uh, when they're asked to introduce, because I feel like men really, you know, tied to that, you know, what you do is, is mm-hmm. who you are. Yeah. And so, so outside of school, dabbling, you know, kind of the e-commerce outdoor industry, it was in crowdfunding for a minute, took a hard left and got into craft beer. I uh, was there for about five years and then uh, now took another hard left and now I'm in alternative foods, namely uh, chickpea uh, based flower foods. And uh, also have a little side project that blends, uh, you know, motorcycle riding and essential oils. So, um, you know, that's this just from a on a personal side, you know, a little bit about myself. Um, yeah, excited to kind of peel back the layers here with you, Jordan. Oh, yeah. You mentioned that you recently started a side project blending motorcycle riding and essential oils. Uh, what products have you created and how did you come up with that idea? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I think that most people wouldn't think that motorcycle riding and the nose are very related, but I can tell you being after being a rider for a little under 10 years, 
they uh, they are. And, you know, I ran just generally experimented a lot uh, while commuting via motorcycle and would take essential oils from Mandy's collection and uh, shout out chill pill and would drop them in the front of my full face helmet. And, you know, the reason I was doing this is basically to not only sure it makes your helmet smell better, but I think that just framing your mind to and to prepare it for what it's about to kind of embark on is really important. You know, I think that the ensuring that you are kind of in the state of calm or Zen or whatever you want to call it right before you get into this, this experience of exhilaration and danger and, you know, is, is very important. And I think anything you can do to prepare your brain to be in a good place, uh, while you're riding is, is incredibly important. So over the last year, we have been creating a concept and legitimizing, um, you know, the kind of experiment that I had into a kit that you can install into your full face helmet right in front of the vent. And it effectively diffuses essential oils uh, while you're riding. So it's been fun. The concept is, is being received really well. We got a lot of interest and sales are picking up and uh, yeah, it's been a fun little project to be a part of. That's awesome. And so then transitioning into the world of music, has that always been important to you? Yeah, I'd say, you know, the earliest kind of spiritual encounters I'd have were were tied to music. I remember as a kid, you know, look watching my my grandma and my mom just up there, you know, me little pipsqueak looking at them, you know, thinking, damn, they're really enjoying this. Like, you know, and I remember them not necessarily being that 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 religious, but you know, watching the power of them and my mom just like tearing up and all these memories flooding into her, her mind, you know, as, as a, as a kid, this was very impactful to me. And then when I grew up a little bit, uh, or got a little bit older, I played in a brass choir that was, you know, largely playing in, in the church and, you know, seeing the same kind of reaction from my, you know, the matriarchs of my family. And just, you know, as I was, you know, trying and, you know, trying my best to, uh, you know, do, do a good job on that, on that, uh, that instrument. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I think that's generally, you know, at least from a personal standpoint, seeing my, you know, again, like I said, the matrix, my family, you know, really have this deep connection to music. And then you see it from an external standpoint, seeing the likes of, like I mentioned, Questlove, and, you know, you see Aretha Franklin, you know, you have these, you know, deep connections with artists that, um, you wouldn't necessarily like, I, I am just fascinated by it. And, uh, I think that, you know, music is one of those dimensions that really does, um, you know, transcend any sort of, it does, like, you don't even have to know what they're saying to enjoy it, which is think about that for a second, you know? So, <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, and, and I think, and that's even apart from the side of what, what, you know, how music is tied to, um, you know, humans at their core nature you know this goes back to like you know even the more nomadic and tribal times of, of humans so um but yeah that's I'd, I'd say that that's you know why music is important to me um but obviously you know our and i know you 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 side with this the music is one of those things that's almost hard to talk about because you have so many genres that you enjoy and the it is definitely a uh very unique and kind of carnal version of art as it is. When you talk about listening to artists like Questlove or Aretha Franklin, like I think one of the things that's so great about music is it's very much like an author writing a book in the sense that it really just lets you 
transport into that their experience and and music can tell a story in a way and, and let us connect with one another in a way that we just wouldn't be able to through spoken word alone. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. You saying that too is I was reading something by the by, uh, James Murphy over at LCD Sound System, and he was saying, um, yes, there's definitely a story. You know, li- literally there are lyrics, um, but in terms of you know breaking down stories into like what did you mean when you wrote that song? You know, he he said you know once you have to kind of you know break down the meaning literally to, you know, maybe a music blog or whatnot, it, it really, it, it, it breaks it, you know, it loses its meaning. Mm-hmm. Meaning is sure. There are lyrics that you know, they're trying to get a point across, but it's, it's, it is uh, one of those things that you, you just kind of, it's a, if it's a very personal journey, you, you listen to a song, it's how it makes you feel. If it doesn't do anything for you, you move on. You find a song that, you know, makes, puts, puts a groove in your step, but uh, it's, uh, or, or if there's something deeper there, you know, that makes you tear up or misty eyed, you know, like, like I was saying with my mom and grandma, um, you know, those are all tied to probably memories that they had as, as kids. And I know it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's music is one of those things that, uh, or generally like all art forms, you know, I came from, you know, a very artistic family. My grandpa is a, you know, 97 year old artist whipping up paintings and, and has been a sculptor all his life. And it's, 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 and then my aunt was also, you know, in the arts community in Boston. It's, it's, it's incredible to watch the mediums in which artists can create and communicate these feelings that are very, um, I think words fail. You know, you, you really, you're, you're, you're digging. If, you know, if you're doing it in a, in a genuine on sense, you're digging it, uh, digging into it and creating it from a place of, you know, pure authenticity and, or, uh, and a lot of times pain. And when you talk about how your family members would have these spiritual experiences with music and you felt connected to that, did you get that same experience ever during the rest of your sermon at, at church? Hmm. Um, no, I'd say, you know, my, my most, the, the, the most, the closest I ever got to, uh, you know, at least being as, as excited and, and stoked about church as I was, it was not in music. It was actually not going to church. It was, I was very, I didn't really get it. You know, I didn't really, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't understand it. I didn't really, you know, see the value in it. And, you know, and that's, I think that's just, that's a blessing that, or not a blessing. Uh, I'd say it's a privilege that, you know, just you're, you're not necessarily aware of until you're a little bit older in life where you see, oh, wow, you know, you, you see why religion is so powerful and important for people and communities across the world, especially, you know, um, you know, those who want to get outside of the world that they are in. Um, so that I think that that was a pretty, you know, narrow viewpoint, at least in my early kind of relationship with, uh, spirituality and religion. Hmm. Interesting. And how has that relationship with spirituality and religion changed over time? Um, you know, as I, as I, as I got older, um, the, the kind of, you know, introduction through my partner, uh, you know, she really introduced me to an incredible set of uh, you know, yoga teachers when we were living in California. And, and that was, you know, um, you know, it just really made me think, okay, maybe you know, Christianity, not necessarily for me. Um, 
at least, you know, from what, what I, how I understood it then, but then seeing these teachers, seeing, you know, the, 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 the messages and the lessons that they were portraying and then mixed in with the kind of physicality of it and, you know, being very connected to your mind, you know, connecting your mind and body. I, it really kind of sparked something where, oh, wow, this is, this is an incredible practice. This is, this is a, an area of thought, uh, that I miss, I haven't really, you know, dabbled in before. So, um, you know, and then, and then also kind of tying it a little bit back to work, you know, right before, you know, I kind of went through this, you know, and, and learned more about the kind of yoga practice, um, you know, I was working in a job that was, you know, putting me at wit's end with kind of physical and mental exhaustion. And, you know, you, you start to think, damn, you know, there's gotta be, you know, you start to think, wow, is your, is your purpose on this, in this, in this world, you know, to be, uh, kind of a cog in a wheel or, you know, do you want to, um, you know, make an impact that's, that's less, uh, not necessarily, you just want to make sure that you're, you're on a path that's not going to burn you out. I'd say, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, whatever that is, you know, it's, it can be, you know, you could be, uh, digging ditches all the way up to the president of the United States, you know, as long as you understand that, you know, this is kind of what your, this is your path and this is where you, uh, you know, are kind of meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. And what are some of the ways that you've been able to identify your path along the way? Yeah. So, you know, I think the uh, one thing that's stuck with me is, you know, at least, you know, coming out of uh, business school, you um, and a lot of like my friend groups, you know, you, you do things, you, you do a job, you uh, in order to make money, to achieve success and uh, you know, to, to make an impact. And then, you know, that money allows you to buy things, um, you know, and, and achieve status and go on fancy trips and buy cool cars. And then that is then, then you're allowed to actually kind of be and, you know, uh, and, and, and kind of understand who you are. And, and I'd say, this, again, that's just something, you know, I, I was, I was reading recently where the actually, you know, what you should do is it's less about, you know, connecting with what you are doing. you you actually start off with, you know, understanding who you are, what drives you, what, what makes you tick. And, and then you, you know, go down, like you said, go down that path and do the actual thing that you're, you're, that's calling you. That's, that is, you know, tied to kind of, um, what you feel, um, you know, you, you feel like this is your place in the world. Um, and then ultimately like the, the, the getting things and the having and the travel kind of come last. So it's just, it's kind of flipped you know, I honestly, you know, just on, on the, on the idea of finding, you know, more purpose and, and finding that path is, you know, just not tying a lot of value to, you know, what I do in terms yeah. of like my own personal value and connecting with, uh, you know, people who are uh, close to me. And, and honestly, you know, I, I know it's, you know, maybe, um, you know, it's, it's kind of overused today, but staying present is much harder than anybody gives it credit for. And I think that that I've, I've honestly, I felt like I've, I've that in alone will, will guide you so well, you know, every job that I've ever taken was, 
as a result of, you know, really learning and listening to a lot of people and um, understanding where the opportunities are and, and just knowing when to kind of commit myself and dive in. Um, and so, you know, staying present is honestly the biggest tool that any brain or any person can have to, you know, place very personally, you know, uh, finding, finding the right path. Um, and, you know, and just, you know, taking care of your, you know, the people who are, uh, you know, your friends and family, you know, there are, they are generally your anchors. And so, you know, you listen, you know, and like I mentioned, uh, you know, my, my, the matriarchs, my family and my dad and grandpa have all been kind of these anchors in my life. Um, you know, and I think that, they're important to actually, you know, to listen to and to connect with and, um, and they provide roots to your experience, but they, you know, to me, they don't necessarily guide you where you go, uh, but they do ground you in a sense. Um, and yeah, I remember them, you know, always mentioning, you know, don't forget who you are and, you know, and understanding that, you know, they're, they're the support net that, that any human needs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like, you know, that sense of community is something that was lost for a lot of people during the pandemic and, you know, part of, yeah, I was gonna say. you know, I was so hard. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, you know, we, uh, a good buddy and I, you know, speaking of kind of staying connected over distances, we, uh, we created a little like, kind of vinyl swap where, you know, he, uh, we decided on a genre every month and he would send me, you know, an album that he thought that I would enjoy and then I as well, but we, you know, wouldn't tell each other what it was. And so it would just show up and this is early, early pandemic. We did it all of 2020. And so then, then, you know, at one point throughout the month, you'd get this, you know, mysterious, uh, square, square box and it would, you'd crack it open and it's your, it's just, you know, cool way to kind of spark conversation and, and obviously listen to some good music and, um, yeah, you know, you, you uh, it's, and then, you know, also, you know, um, being able to, you know, digitally connect with people like we're doing now, you know, I think that, that that's the incredible part about this time. Obviously, there's tremendous sadness and loss, but there's also the, for you know, me personally, I'm a, I'm a pretty big nerd. So, you know, watching these business models and technologies advance as fast as they did over the pandemic has been pretty incredible um it's a you know marker in human achievement and and you know watching all of these kind of causes bubble up and show um you know the kind of both the incredible side of of the human experience but also the dark side and scary side and and an oppressive side are there any emerging technologies or softwares that are getting you really excited Mm just to watch all the convergences now, you know, the kind of, you know, more decentralized crypto, uh, cryptocurrencies and web three and just generally decentralized platforms in general, combining with VR combining you, it's almost like, uh, you know, futurists have to be very giddy right now because all of these things are coalescing and is it going, and then also macroeconomic conditions like the wealth gap and, globalization and all these things are coming together that i mean i would be shocked if if something like you know ready player one wasn't online within the next like five years um 
I know that it's, you know, the metaverse is obviously trying to, to pop forward. And I don't, you know, and I, I've been talking about it with, you know, my partner and my friends and, you know, it's, is it a good thing? Is it, where is it going to go? I think it's just fascinating to watch, watch, you know, all of these uh, people really kind of dig in and, um, you know, I, you know, I don't know where it's going to go, but it is going to be, could be a fun ride. Um Hopefully we can learn uh, from our mistakes in the, in the analog world, um, hmm. you know, and, and, and um, I think another thing, you know, from a you know, technology standpoint is all of these ways that we are kind of replugging ourselves back into ecosystems and trying to speak the language of animals and speak the language of plants and, you know, and, 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 you know, through conservation techniques. I don't necessarily know of, you know, other than the, the incredible work of say like micro remediation where, you know, mushrooms are being installed to like clean up ground, toxic grounds and all sorts of like ways that the people are just reconnecting and, and taking nature more seriously. Because I feel like over the last, you know, couple hundred years, um, we've largely just kind of tried to remove ourselves from the food chain and that's had some pretty lasting impact. So, you know, watching these technologies bubble up, um, I'd say, you know, I mean, I just got back from a big food conference in Anaheim called Expo West. And one of the most fascinating things that's coming up to me, you know, related to kind of mushrooms is these these plant-based foods, you know, and, and most people have, uh, most people have heard of, you know, beyond and impossible foods, but there's, there's this new meat that just launched this, I believe it's called meaty, but they grow, they're growing alternative, you know, quote unquote plant-based meat, but mushrooms kind of outside of plant, but it's mm-hmm. a, uh, they're growing meats out of mycelium fiber and growing mm-hmm. them into these forms so that it's, it's not necessarily like, you know, uh, a plant trying to fake like it's ground beef, which is always kind of a little funny to me. Uh, it's actually, you know, kind of a fibrous texture and it's supposed to mirror, you know, the, the muscle fibers of say chicken or beef, uh, or steak. And, you know, with, uh, obviously all the data is there where it's, it's from a water consumption standpoint, uh, from a, a nutritional standpoint, it all checks the boxes and, and it's, it's, so I think that's that's going to be a fun space to watch, um, yeah. specifically. Yeah, totally. Well, and you talk about how there's this <clears throat> growing sense of interconnectedness with nature. And as we've talked in the past about consciousness and the idea that consciousness could be much, I don't know, broad, broader than what we t- typically tend to think of it. I mean, do you ever think it's possible that nature's almost like fighting back or not fighting back, but, but letting us know, like, we got to stop destroying her. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's actually that, that it's a good, good point. You bring that up. It's reminds me of a quote in this book and, uh, and, and it brought up the fact that humans are always in competition with trees for space and water and resources, you know, specifically forests and development, you know, trees, if you think about them as beings are, you know, it's you know, just visually, that's pretty fascinating, but, you know, we are in competition with them. 
Um, they are the, at least from a terrestrial, like a land-based being, you know, one of the bigger ones that we, you know, encounter on a daily basis. Um, and we're constantly kind of in battle with them. We're cutting them down. We're, uh, we are, you know, deforesting, we are, you know, mm-hmm. killing off these ecosystems. And, but the thing is, sure, we can win that battle, but in the end, we, we are the ones ending up losing, you know, we like the trees are the glue to, you know, a lot of what's going on, but the, I, so to your point, I don't necessarily think that nature can tell us that, Hey, we're really fucking up other than, you know, the, the entire collapse of ecosystems and that that's being felt now, you know, and, and, you know, take this with a grain of salt. I am not a, you know, an environment, you know, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a biologist, you know, I'm, I'm an arm. I, I am a concerned citizen, I would say, um, a concerned world citizen. And so I think that by the time that nature gives us the ability or is, is, is telling us that, Hey, we're really messing up, um, you know, it's a little bit too late and we're seeing the ramifications of that now. Um, you know, and so the, I'd say that that's why it's also, it's, 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 uh, you know, you used to remain hopeful to watch, you know, this, this innovation take place in, in correcting the wrongs of, of our food system, but you also, um, you know, it can't move fast enough. Uh, yeah. and, uh, but, you know, I think we both have economic backgrounds, um, you know, from a schooling standpoint and it's, uh, I'd say that, you know, once the utility is there, once the externalities all kind of, you know, come together, you know, people can move very fast if they want to. So whether it's going to be forced or whether it's going to be by collaboration is kind of up to us. Yeah. What is it like? Mother is the, or necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So hopefully we figure it out. Uh, that's the the idea yeah i'm optimistic i mean you know it's like any type of progress it sometimes feels like two steps forward and one steps back but it does feel like we're i think hopefully going generally in the right direction although like and who knows maybe this was just like a total bullshit meme but i did see something on instagram a couple weeks ago that was like it i get i could not tell if it was a joke or if it was a serious thing yeah it was like (laughs) researchers found that by putting VR headsets on cows and having it set to a field where they're grazing, they produced more milk and were happier. And it's got a fucking picture of these two cows in these little pens locked up with oculuses on their face. Oh, and I'm like, is this seriously like a legitimate solution that people are proposing here? I know. I know. I, that's, that's bad. I mean, I, I also, I think that, you know, one of your, I was listening to one of your older, older episodes and, you know, the, the faster humans can understand that, you know, there are souls inside of every one of those animals, uh, the faster we understand, you know, the impact of, of fucked up shit like that, you know, it's, you, you, you have to understand every, every animal that, you know, whether, whatever, you know, I know this is more, uh, closely tied or like Eastern religions, but it's like, you know, with the concept of reincarnation and, and these kind of like circular patterns of, you know, souls kind of transitioning, uh, you know, through life and death. Um, 
yeah, it's, you know, you, you, you shouldn't, uh, you know, you should respect even down to the ant. Like, I don't know, just slow down and appreciate, you know, what's in front of you, you know, you don't, yeah. uh, but you know, there's, there's a lot of people with a lot of pain in their hearts and they, uh, they just need to, uh, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. You know, there's, you know, it kind of depends on your perspective, uh, you know, why people mistreat, you know, and I think it's a kind of a lack of, we, because, you know, humans have, you know, imaginations and language and all these things are, are incredible inventions or not imagination, but, you know, languages and technologies, they're incredible inventions in our perspective. Um, you know, but it's, it's, it is like from, from nature's point of view, they're, they're unnecessary. So, no, now it's kind of up to us. Now we've made all these fancy, shiny things. Now we have to create things that allow us to actually truly communicate with, uh, you know, animals and plants and, uh, otherworldly beings, you know, and some, you know, it's probably, probably not going to be technology. We do like, you know, I'm sure, you know, you've read the, the brain is an incredible thing and it has the ability to, you know, change consciousness and perspective and tap into unseen dimensions. You know, I mean, even uh, aside from, you know, psychedelics and, and these things that can obviously change your state of mind pretty quickly, just think about how powerful even your nose is as a human. Like you is the only sense that you have that is completely unfiltered. You're, you're taking in these tiny little bits of things in front of you as you're walking throughout the world. And and our sense of smell is horrible comparatively to a dog's. I was just watching something last night, whereas, you know, a dog's sense of smell is a hundred times better than ours. Their vision is worse than ours, but, but they can literally, you, know, you think about that, the ramifications of that you can, you know, you're, you're seeing this effectively like 3d imaging, uh, you know, uh, just slice of what's in front of you when, you know, I, I don't know. I, I like to just think about that where you're, you're a city yeah. dog walking through Manhattan. Like, what do they think? This has got to be, you know, <laughs> yeah. An odd place. Uh, so anyway, we, we lack the, the, we lack the tools to understand and respect all of these, you know, incredible, um, you know, things that we, we really take for granted. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's cool. You can talk about how dogs experience life and something I think about too, is like, we understand so little about our own consciousness and the way our own mind works. And like, we talk about, you know, how dogs perceive the world and how other animals do, but like, and, you know, and people tend to back to the kind of nature consciousness thing. People tend to think of trees as these inanimate objects that have no life that just kind of, I mean, you know, like they're, they're alive, but yet they have no self-awareness or, or free will. And it's like, how do you know that? You- yeah. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, how does, so just because they operate on a extreme, a much slower, you know, communication stream, and there's no words it's, it's, you know, they're there. It's a super organism. And that's like, that's one of the most more fascinating things. I remember, I forget. I don't know if I, I was reading somewhere that where basically there was a woman uh, over the last few decades that was exposing, you know, the fact that forests and trees 
are in collaboration, not competition. And they'll, you know, I know you've, probably, it sounds like you've read some stuff about this, but they, they'll share resources underground. They'll communicate when there's, you know, they're getting infested or they'll take care of their young. They'll do a lot of things that, that, that we do. Um, but they're from an evolutionary standpoint, not in competition. The, the forest itself is a living, breathing thing. Mm. And, and so, you know, all the way down to, I mean, the soil in like a very healthy forest is its own kind of, you know, uh, ridiculous slice of life. And, and so uh, the reason I bring that up is because prior to that, you know, people thought that, uh, oh, I don't, I don't want to speak for everybody, but, but the largely what everybody, you know, what, what, what the idea is, is that everybody is kind of a dog eat dog world. You know, everyone's yeah. resource constrained, and only the strongest win. It's a very kind of masculine view of what's going on. And the ramifications of that are pretty fast. And again, I'm an armchair, you know, <laughs> citizen of the world. So, so take it with a grain of salt. But in the end, that is, you know, you, you think about the people who are, um, the, you know, generating these re- the research findings and, and and using the language to build these yeah. scientific articles. You know, there's a lot of ego behind that, and and largely for a very long time, a lot of white males. And so, so to have better perspectives and and more, uh, you know, less kind of ego driven, um, you know, viewpoints in the world allows truths to come through. And allows us to actually communicate with nature in a more intimate and, and more, I'd say, universally collaborative way. You know, and so yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and another thing, you know, it's just like something I was, I was, I was, uh, you know, tuning into is there was a there was a researcher who was trying to prove and trying to understand the intelligence of elephants. And, and so the researcher, you know, hung this big basket of fruit up above their head out of reach of their trunk, and then put a stick on the ground and assumed that the elephant would pick up the stick and smack the food. And then they would get the food. And, you know, that would prove that they use tools. Like, you know, there's a few, you know, animals out there that use tools and that's one marker for success, or that's one marker of intelligence that humans use. But again, that's through the human's perspective. So, and, and many elephants walked with the stick and just didn't pay any mind, didn't pay attention to the food. And then, so the humans had to kind of think outside the box. We're like, okay, so we got to, it's not a stick. So let's, let's put a box or a tire there. And the elephants instantly took the box, put it under the food, took the food, ate it. And then what they, what they figured out was, is that picking up the stick would have shut off all the receptors in their nose. So the elephants would just be like, why would I ever do that? Why would I shut off this like gigantic organ to be able to see and, and, and get the food up above my head? So you know, the reason I bring that up is that humans largely just don't, we're passing everything through our lens, our perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and that, you know, if, if you can't kind of check your own, you know, ego or understand that you should, you know, think about other, I don't know, just respect <laughs> this gigantic, beautiful being more than you should. I don't know. You know, so. Yeah. Are you familiar with Bruce? Bruce Lipton. No, who's that? You should check him out. He's a, uh, he was one of the guys that really was the first stem cell researchers. One of those first guys. And then became like the father of, or one of the fathers of epigenetics. 
uh, and like the biology of belief and, you know, that there's a quantum field and all of that. He did a really great like walkthrough of our current scientific paradigm and how we got to this, some of the accepted views of conventional science or whatever you want to call it. And one of the things that he argues is that Darwin's theory of evolution was very, or at least the one that has been accepted by the mainstream was just totally wrong, frankly, right? That, you know, evolution isn't one of competition. It's one of cooperation that we're co-evolving. Okay. And he also talks about, even look at the subtitle of that book that Darwin published, I think it was like in the 1700s. And it's something like, or the discussion of the inferior races, right? And and he makes the argument that a big part of why this theory was picked up so quickly by the power structures of the day is because they helped to justify European imperialism. Mm. More ego-driven decision. I mean, yeah, that's funny you bring that up is tying these, these, these epiphanies you have where you're like, Oh, wow. Okay. There's, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily like, you know, the Illuminati or whatnot, but, you know, uh, like I said, we went to, or I went to business school. So, you know, coming out of business school, you're taught like that the U S can do no wrong and policy decisions in the best interest of the people. And it's a democratic state and, you know, money is not evil you know, I mean, obviously I hadn't done my homework. I haven't, I hadn't formed my own individual opinion on all this, but I was kind of a product of my environment coming out of business school. And I think the first time that I learned, I, I really was like, damn, this is pretty messed up was I read this book called uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins. Yep. And oh my God, that was pretty disheartening. I would say I coming out of that, uh, you know, finishing that book, just, you know, and, and those of you who haven't read it, it's, it's basically, he was a really power. He was a really gifted kind of, uh, economist and he, and it's been a bit, a bit since I read it. I know he kind of came out with a couple like updated versions, but he came out of school. He was picture him as kind of like a James Bond of economists. And so he would show up to, countries, third world countries, South America, largely, and discuss with, you know, world leaders, Hey, listen, we'll, we'll work on your big capital infrastructure projects. We'll, we'll bring these roads. We'll bring these buildings to your cities. You know, we'll make sure that you're paid. We'll make sure that the projects get done, you know, borrow a little money from the IMF, borrow a little money from XYZ, and we'll make it happen. And largely all of this was doing was over leveraging the these third world countries in a debt obligations they can never repay and while all the all the while having the leaders these very corrupt leaders get paid on the side and just impoverishing you know and, and that was the like economic colonialism this very dark way to make sure that you know these you know, these countries stayed in the united states pocketbook and you know kept the you know and I, I don't pretend to know the vastness of all of this like very uh you know back back room you know kind of shady corrupt uh practice i'm sure it's that's there's much worse things now um but it was one of the first books that I, you know, it dawned on me that, oh shit, you know, I, 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 I don't, uh, I'm not, 
it, it just made me less patriotic to be, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid as much. And so I, I you know, can you asked the question about, you know, at least from a professional sense, how do you find purpose? You know, I think that that's also why I like to kind of stay small with, with businesses and, and stay close to the founding team, because I, I can make an impact and I know the founders, I know our mission, I know, you know, largely how the sausage is made. So, um, yeah. But all small businesses are dependent on large banks and large entities greater than themselves. I understand, you know, it's it's just it's fascinating to see the interconnectedness in the web of of mm-hmm, global economies and and how you know those policy decisions uh, you know don't generally align with your personal values. But that's why politics is so messy. And not even your personal values, right? And you were talking earlier about the inequality um, gap for wealth. And you think about just the economic system that we have today, and it's all geared towards monopolies and growth and horizontal integration. And so as that continues for the small businesses, it naturally just gets harder and harder to compete. And so for anyone who wants to break out of that poverty cycle, it becomes more and more impossible to do so. And that's why this wealth gap just keeps spiraling in the complete wrong direction. I had some friends, you know, I'm sure you do too. And you have friends who work at, you know, companies like Amazon and, and Google. And um, I, I don't know, I, I'd say Google or sorry, Amazon is more in this, in this camp where <clears throat> trying to kind of horizontally integrate and take over everything from, you know, video streaming to, you know, get that pen. You know, I, there was a there was a comedian who who was telling this joke recently that I heard where you can on Amazon you can order a single pen and get it next day in a box. Like thinking about the the ramifications of that, just just ludicrous business model. I mean, yeah. I I love I love the from an operations and technological standpoint that you know what humans are able to do, but at a certain point you got to be like. Ah, why? Like, wh- why did we build that that way? Yeah. Why? Why are we, this is so counterintuitive? Where it's it's Amazon is the to me, you know, and I'm, I'm a big believer in design thinking, like looking at you know the end user and making sure that it's 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 a it's a positive experience for them. But design thinking shouldn't be applied to everything. The end user, you, you, especially, you know, like you know, you you should bring in externalities like the carbon emission impact of this the labor impact of this decision the it's almost like why is there only one way you know there's two ways to to measure a successful uh customer experience how fast it gets to your door and how cheap it is that's ridiculous there should be at least two other things you know to oversimplify it like carbon emissions and and some sort of like happiness quota from those employees who actually have to do that shit, <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, because, no. because you know it's and, and so it's it's a weird time because I know that also those you got to think the companies are uh, investing in especially you know I'm sure you've seen your fair share of videos or probably personally toured one you know like a, a e-commerce fulfillment warehouse is is a very roboticized place you know there's bins there's these you know racks flying around and you know so you know i don't know i i used to i used to work on in some of this some of this uh you know passion is coming from at while i worked at the brewery 
I was working on the uh, kind of operations and logistics side of the, the business. And, you know, you, you really, you really start to empathize and or sympathize with the plight of the workers who are doing that job of, you know, moving the heavy things and throwing kegs around and loading trucks and driving the trucks at all hours of the day. And, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, so you, you know, until you're in that position of, I think most people's most direct connection to some of those jobs would be like being a server, being a waiter, you know, that's, that's a pretty, that's, that'll teach you a lot, you know, from a, from a labor standpoint. But I think that physical, hard job, you know, physical, hard labor, um, you know, early in life teaches you a lot. And, and, uh, you know, and, and I think more people should, you know, in a, in a, not, not from a corporate sense, not like, Oh, I'm the, the CEO of this company and I'm going to go, you know, do a ride along for one day. No, it's actually, I don't know, get your hands dirty. It'll do you, it'll do you a lot of good. And you'll, you'll understand the, the ramifications of decisions you make as, uh, you know, being somebody who's in a place of privilege in place of, um, you know, having the ability to be in more of a service job, sorry, a, a intellectual kind of managerial position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, what do you even think is going to be the future of the workforce? I think there's going to be a lot of kind of hybrid robotics coming out. I think that once, and, you know, you asked me what, you know, technology is that's really fascinating, intriguing. I think driverless cars is going to be driverless cars and once the airspace is is regulated enough for me to figure out, um, you know, drones, I think drones are going to be very, um, I mean, that if you, if you think about like a lot of the things that are being delivered via kind of Amazon and stuff right now are very small. So I feel like once that those floodgates open, I think drones are going to be pretty commonplace in supply chains and fulfillment, at least last, like what they call last mile, you know, bringing it from a warehouse to kind of a regional neighborhood. Um, but also, I mean, back on driverless cars, I think the, there's like semi-truck infrastructure is going to be overturned very soon. You know, I, I, I wouldn't once, once the, you know, the insurance and the technology can kind of catch up. Uh, driverless semi trucks are going to kind of be, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen, it's just kind of a lame reference, but there, did you ever see that X-Men, the the Wolverine one? I think it's yeah. a couple of years ago. They had, I mean, that was, that's what it's going to be like. That's, that's such, you know, I've talked to a few people in that space with, you know, autonomous semi trucks and trailers. And I mean, that's getting from point A to B right now at the demand that say, you know, the supply chains that or how much, especially with the pressures that the supply chain is experiencing right now, you're going to see massive investments and lots of people turning the screws on getting that online because, you know, and I think that's actually for the good, for, for the good of a lot of, and that's, that's one of those things where I like, why do that? I do think that driving a truck as your livelihood is a dangerous thing. I, I think that there's better ways to re-educate people and get them into places that, you know, um, 
you know, and again, this is coming from a plate. Like I've driven, I've driven those trucks. I, I haven't driven a semi, but I've driven a truck that's half the size of a semi before for long periods of the day. And it's not, not a good, it's not a safe job driving in general. I think I've even heard somebody say, you know, it's this weird, we're in this weird time where being behind the wheel as a human driving this thing going, you know, 70, 80 miles an hour, it's so unsafe. And, and the faster we can get, you know, uh, computers to help us move ourselves and our things from A to B is, is it can come no, come no faster in my opinion. It's, um, you know, I, I know that there's very heated debates about, you know, how robots would prioritize other lives over, you know, like if, if there's a crash that's imminent, I mean, that is a very real yeah. uh, al- algorithm that the trial uh, problem kind of thing. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah. What's the trolley problem, Jordan? Fix, it's fix. like, it's like some philosophical, uh, riddle or not even riddle but you know just like kind of like brain teasers and it's like all right if you're the conductor of a train and there's four people on the track but you can Mm -hmm. switch to a different track but there's one person on that track right so either way you're going to kill somebody do you do nothing and kill four people or do you do something and kill one person yeah yeah like you have to you have to make a conscious effort to kill yeah which is yeah yeah exactly like it's uh yeah, I don't know. I mean, you think? I mean, I think most people would probably logically be like, "Well, you do less harm; you kill the one person." But even still, it's like, damn. But then you have to still got to pull that lever. It's kind of a wild concept. Yeah, and does it make it easier that the the lever is being pulled by a robot, and that? But there's even if that that robot is, uh, you know, just that robot. There's still you know human. There's a human company behind it. I'll come back to that topic. I, I, the, the, I didn't necessarily have a good connection to, uh, to the car thing, but yeah. but the idea of like, you know, zooming in and out. And I think it's, it's, it's important to see how things, you know, at their most basic level function and how they scale. You know, it's like thinking about, you know, why music is so important to us, you know, bringing it back to like kind of how we opened up the, the episode you know it's you you know when we are nomadic tribes you you would you know dance circles you would you know use music to storytell you would do all these things and then and then as you layer in technology and had you know and and as they get bigger and bigger and bigger you know just seeing okay now those same stories are being told but they're being told over streaming services or in music festivals or um you know and, and it's just I guess thinking about, you know, how things grow and transcend these generations is, you know, not necessarily a point to it. I think it's just fun, like mental chewing gum, just like why asking yourself why more, you know, why, why do these things exist? Why are they here? Why, why is a car here? You know, Oh, it's to, you know, move people from A to B, but, but also it's, it's this, idea of freedom, you know, and, and, and so how free do you need to be, you know, where, you know, I don't know, it's it's kind of, it's just, it's just interesting to think like what drives people and, and what is inspiring these decisions that they make in a personal or even professional sense. Yeah. When you bring up this topic of freedom and you're talking about John Perkins and confessions of an economic hitman, and I'm curious to get your thoughts of how free do you think we actually are today? 
I think I think the United States does a really good job of creating the illusion of freedom. I think that we I think the United States does a very good job of making sure that the right like specific people know that they are free and they can move about the world pretty unencumbered in or in an un- unencumbered sense yeah. and I think for the longest time, you know, that's kind of, you know, kind of driven to something I was thinking about recently is, you know, the United States is built on oppression and slavery and there's there, it depended on a workforce that, you know, they needed other people. And so I think that they, and that, that idea and the theme has obviously made our, made its way into modern day life uh, through other you know, very kind of veiled ways and in very scary, scary ways. And so again, coming from a straight white male, this is, you know, um, or a white, white male in general, it's, it's not like, I understand that, you know, this is, I, I don't necessarily have like strong grounds to, you know, speak to the other perspectives. Um, but yeah, so. I'd say it's, it's, but, but even, are you even free if you know that the freedom that you're given is predicated on other people being oppressed? Like that's, that's, uh, that's just, that's propaganda. I don't know. That's not, it's not a healthy form of freedom. If, if that's, um, what it is, I think that, you know, the U S is, is good at, you know, sticking to the, the kind of rugged individualism and making sure that, you know, certain liberties are protected. Um, I don't know, but it's, it's a messy, messy place. And it's, uh, you know, it's in some ways the, yeah, I don't know if, if uh, I, I think in general, like freedom is, 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 at least in a place like the United States where we are so diverse and the big, large melting pot of a lot of different cultures and ethnicities. And it's, you know, whereas you compare us to, um, you know, other countries throughout the world who are perceived as more free. I don't know. You know, we're, it's a United States is a gigantic experiment that is currently, you know, kind of hurting. So we'll, mm-hmm. we'll see how it all kind of develops. Yeah. I mean, where do you think we go from here realistically with our government? Like, like I mean, yeah. candidly, like it, to me from the outside in, it looks like it's fucking falling apart at the seams. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that. Yeah. I, you know, I, that's why I didn't get into politics. I think that's why business is, is, is a little bit more comfortable to me in general, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I, not that to say I don't think about this. It's just it's one of those things where you 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 do recognize that technically, you know, everyone's perspective is valid in their own way, but it's very hard to listen to some you know like bigoted you know misogynistic language being thrown out in our like highest levels of of government, and uh, even if it's they're not and largely I I think a lot of the times they're not aware enough to understand that they're, you know, doing what they do. Like they, they blame it on the constituents, but that's, that's thinly veiled as, as listen, you know what you're doing, you know why. And I don't, 
you know, I, uh, I don't know where we go from here, Jordan, but I do know that getting more, you know, people of color and more women into leadership positions will do our country a lot of good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't think we, you and I being both white males, I don't, I don't think we really should, but we've proven that we can't, we can't necessarily build a collaborative and, 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 uh, functioning democracy. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, and nor should we, right? Like, I mean, it's ridiculous. Right. No. That was ever the case in the first place. Yeah. yeah. That's what people just somehow forget, right? Like they think all these, you talked about, you know, he has been built on slavery and oppression and like people send to, act like these things were so far away or, you know, the world is so different now, but I mean, it's not at all. Like look at who's actually elected in politics. It's so high white male, you know, percentage wise, like it's obviously gotten better, but you know, you have the generation after generation of legacy of white males who own land, getting all the power and consolidating that power and then having the financial resources and the network to continue passing that, power on generation after generation, you can understand why the system feels so rigged to so many people. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I think I saw, you know, like you mentioned, you saw a meme here, there, I, I saw a meme that was, you know, e- even, you know, the idea of, of a 70 plus year old person being a representative of the current days, like most important decisions being, I mean, with Biden is 70 plus, I, I just, two things come to mind there. They can never be that connected to, you know, it, it, you know, you're like that awkward uncle in the corner, like trying to relate to kids. Listen, you're never going to understand like what's, what's truly going on. I, I mean, sure. You can have people who you could delegate to do research for you and, you know, you are ultimately making the decision, but also why would you want to be a politician at that age? Like if you're 70 years old, I guess go, I can't, this can't be. You, you can't honestly want to be doing this right now, but you know, maybe, maybe that's why I'm not president. I don't have that hunger. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's part of the problem, right? Is the, just the entire structure of our government is such that to become president, you just have to have all the characteristics that make you an unfit president. Exactly. Yeah. Generally. And, and, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So We'll see. Have you have you read a little bit of it's related, but have you read any uh, Octavia Butler books? I've not. So Parabola of the Sower, uh, and and a, bu- a buddy and I read Parabola it. of color. Parabola of, of the Sower, S O W E R. Um, and not so it. this, yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating, pretty dystopian book. Uh, she, you know it's set in a place it's set in LA. All of the communities are walled up communities. Uh, you know, if you don't have a gun, you're largely, you know, not going to survive in this type of, of world. The two, two major things like basically spurred the, the world to be what it is. It, and it was this, this drug that makes people uh, addicted to setting fires and then mm-hmm. the other thing is there's a uh, a large kind of pandemic that that kind of made everybody kind of cloister up into these you know again you know it's just it's kind of a bad maxian you know yeah visual oh, sorry visuals and uh the 
the reason I bring it up is that, you know, the safest places in this type of, you know, United States are on these corporate owned work camps, you know, where you get a house, you know, provided by the company, you're, you have armed security provided by the company in this walled off and then the most beautiful places that you can live. And anybody in between migrating, trying to get to these, these cities is, is putting their life at risk. Huh. Um, and then, and then the government and, and uh, another reason I bring it up is the, the uh, Octavia Butler was so kind of prescient and, and she predicted the rise of somebody like, you know, uh, Trump and, and saw that, that, you know, and, and the scary thing is that she pretty much verbatim, you know, predicted a lot of the rhetoric he would use to kind of rise to power. And so, you know, this is just kind of a populist figure who would, you know, lean on the religious, right. You know, and, and kind of scare people into, you know, falling into these, um, you know, traps, but anyway, um, so that's, that's kind of influenced, uh, you know, a little bit of my viewpoints, but the, the, the book is set, you know, the main character in this book is, um, this girl named Lauren Olamina. And she, you know, is, is a child of this scene from a, a child of a pastor. And, you know, so she in this in this kind of gnarly world, she's inventing a, a a new religion that is all built around, you know, this kind of, um, you know, this idea that you know God is change, and um, you know, the, the religion should be this this you know this idea of collaborating with your. Uh, within your community and learning hard skills. And, you know, I, I don't know, it's just, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating book to kind of read in a time like this, because you recognize how uh, fragile societies are and fragile, you know, a lot of what we have in front of us is built on trust and built on mutual respect. And so if you see these start to like kind of tatter, you know, what, what does that turn into? So a uh, little, little bit scary, but also it's ne- never, never uh, never a bad thing to kind of put yourself into these and that's what well, the power of books and the power of movies uh you know does for us this is kind of allows us to enter into the imagination of of another another person another very gifted person and, and that is definitely who uh you know what octavia butler did for me yeah I mean, in the end, they, you know, getting out of this uh, pickle and binder is going to require some really creative thinkers. And um, yeah. yeah, so yeah, well, it was like Einstein that said something like, you know, you can't you can't solve a problem with the same level of thinking that created the problem. <laughs> yeah, totally. Exactly. So you're talking earlier about. Uh, just mushrooms as an alternative plant protein. And, you know, obviously we've talked about mushrooms before, just more broadly and kind of some of the cooler, crazy things going on with them. I'm curious if you ever experimented with psychedelic mushrooms. Yeah, Jordan, a couple of times, most recently, you know, I was had a little bit of time on my hands and was, you know, just considering, you know, Hey, let's take, take a, a healthy dose and see, see where this goes. And, and, you know, with the all intention of making sure that the, you know, all the, all the trappings were there and the, the, the setting and the set and the intentions. And, uh, it was, it was a pretty, it was a pretty wild ride. You know, I, uh, my, my first time ever, ever was my early twenties and it was, you know, 
largely visual and there's a little bit of that you know kind of ego dissolution they they talk about but uh this time it was a uh, you know hit me like a bag of bricks and mm-hmm. i think the ma- the major you know kind of lessons that i drew from it you know without getting too too detailed was um you know kind of related to what we were just talking about you know our our realities and w- the things that we hold dear are you no, know, there, there's something that you should, you should not take for granted. You know, you, you should, if you're, if you're at a crossroads of, Oh, you know, should I call my mom or <laughs> should I, should I call my buddy that I haven't talked to in five plus years or, you know, or five plus years, far too long, but five months, you know, and, and, uh, or, 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 Hey, um, you know, just tell people you're thinking about them, you know, more often and, and, and follow your instinct, follow your intuitions more, because I think that these are, you know, little bits and messages that are coming from, you know, sure. Maybe, maybe they're just coming from your brain, but who knows, like we've talked about Jordan, you know, it's this interconnected web of consciousness where, you know, you need to respect that. And these things come from, you know, all sorts of sources, you know, and, and we're more interconnected than we realize, uh, even if everything that we're doing on the outs outside, you know, with, uh, you know, uh, creating more distance between ourselves through technology or avoiding people is, is growing ever present. I think that's also one of the benefits of something like the pandemic is coming out of it. It's going to be this, um, you know, I'll also, obviously the, you know, the war is pretty freaky. And so that's just kind of throws, throwing a curveball and all this, but I think people are going to appreciate in-person uh, engagement so much more, you know, you're not just going to be, um, you know, sitting and uh, tied to your phone and assuming that that's going to give you the, the social connection that your brain needs like uh, nobody's fooling themselves and they're flipping death scrolling through through instagram like that's not that's not the same as i mean even this i'm staring at a you know desktop wallpaper mm-hmm. of your your flat little face but i know that <laughs> you're, you're you're so much more animated and and a you know beautiful being yourself when you know we're we're bullshitting and, and chatting in person and you know it's and, and so it's uh yeah i was even talking to my mom about that you know just it sure that the flat, you know, zoom is, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a means to an ends right now, but it would be cool, you know, kind of bringing it full circle into if we were to be able to have, you know, more of a VR experience. Okay. That, that's like getting closer. Um, you know, if you yeah. can digitize your, your facial features and your responses and it's not this creepy, you know, uh, kind of deep fake version of yourself. I, you know, I don't know. Where, yeah. But anyway, point is, you know, I think that coming out of it will be a lot more dialed into, um, you know, things that, you know, fire off dopamine in our, in our heads and endorphins and make sure that, you know, we're taking care of ourselves in, a, in an authentic way. Yeah. I think it'd be cool if uh, there's eventually like, phones that you can call and like you have a hologram of your body pop up like in star wars or something <laughs> yeah definitely i know i just finished up the boba fett i uh i'm yeah. such a i love that stuff you know and that's the thing it's just like makes you appreciate nature so much more because you think see all these you know weird beings that came out of someone's head but if we we take 
creatures on our earth for granted for but like you look at a giraffe that shit is weird we just don't we're just <laughs> yeah <Like, laughs> or 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 you know i any literally any animal name it it's it's weird we just happen to have yeah. the 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 perspective of being used to it you know <laughs> so. right, right. and i think like that's what i don't know to me like the the whole idea of like good and evil right is like i think it's a little bit simplistic right and like a lot of the time for me like evil is really more about like ignorance or not being able to recognize how incredible what's right in front of you really is yeah i mean that's a that's a big big lesson you know and i'm uh, that's i'm more early on that side of things but recognizing that there's no good or bad you know like whatever happens to you in life you know it's even if it's perceived from a societal standpoint as good, it may not be, you know, you have no idea. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad. Who knows? Thanks, well, and I, to- I totally agree with that. And for me, one of the most profound uh, mindset shifts that has resulted of my, through my um, usage of psychedelics is just my conception of death and of my soul has completely changed where like, I no longer think of it like I, I just i just know part of me is concerned that my consciousness won't go on after this life right like what is that going to look like i have no fucking idea and you know maybe in true consciousness time isn't linear whatever but point is like i just i just don't think that this is all there is and so when you start to think with that perspective like these things that are seen as like obviously people being like horrible things happen all the time people are taken before they their time and all of these things. But if you start to think about just your soul's journey, not being limited to this one physical life and there's so much more, and it's all just about the experience for your soul, you know, over infinity and eternity, then you can start to have a very different perspective on those things that are quote unquote bad or evil at face value. Yeah, for sure. And you, like we kind of talked about early on, you, you respect other lives more. Cause there could be like a, a long lost friend, you know, that, that cow that you put the VR on, <laughs> you know, you know, that, that, or that person put the VR on is, you know, that's uh yeah. Could be a cousin of yours. <laughs> the, uh, I know we were talking about this. I'm just curious and you don't have to, you know, uh, put this in, but the i'm curious how you know we were talking about a lot of this a lot of the research and a lot of the readings in this area lend to you know going down a lot of deep rabbit holes and uh-huh. you know how you how, you know when does something really stick and and you know and, and when do you know i know there's a lot of different paths that ultimately converge on this like higher form of consciousness so you know yeah what what generally works for you personally jordan so you're saying, how do I know, like, uh, when I've like hit hit some hit like hit a rabbit hole that I believe is true? Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, I'd say, or, or, or maybe rabbit hole is an insensitive way to describe it. You know, there's, I'd say, when when people you know bring up consciousness or UAPs or psychedelics, you know, I'd say uh, historically people would be like, oh, you know, 
oh, like kind of glaze over. They, they uh-huh. would, if they're, if they're not already on that path they they'd be, it'd be hard to get them on that path. And I know you and I've been in situations where, you know, we're trying to like bring people along for the, for the journey and be open-minded. Uh-huh. So, so um, yeah, you know, just kind of open-ended. Yeah, exactly. Though. So, yeah. You know. Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, I think it's gotten easier over time since I've stopped trying to force it on people. Right. And like, you know, yeah. Ram Dass even talks about this idea of like, you know, everyone's on their own soul's journey. Like you can't, who are you to, to tell them or to, to force, you know, your views about consciousness on anyone. Like all you can do is, is be a breath of fresh air when people want to come up for air. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll know. Yeah. When somebody is, is, has, has their ear and heart open to these, these new ideas and concepts. Yeah. But it is a, I mean, it's a tightrope, right? Because for me, like it's just been so meaningful and it's so exciting and so interesting, but it's like, to your point, if someone isn't at a place where they're ready to hear it, or they're just, it's just frankly, just not interesting to them, then you got to just, they respect that. And, but, you know, I mean, it's, I, I go back with that, you know, a lot back and forth too, just even with like family members and some of my friends, just like, it's hard because you don't want to lose those relationships. But I also want to respect like, Hey, look, if we're just not interested in the same things at this time, like then this time we'll be resonating at our own frequencies and, you know, we'll, we'll link up at some point again in the future. Like it's not so it's, it's, it's a hard, it's a delicate balancing act that I try yeah. to do that. For sure. For sure. Cool, man. Well, thanks for doing this. Thanks for inviting me. Dude, this was a blast, man. Thanks for coming on. This is so much fun. Thanks everyone for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. In this discussion, Alex talked about John Perkins' book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and the impact it had on his perception of America's intelligence agencies. I wanted to dive further into this book as it had a huge impact on me as well. Reading this book a few years ago was the first time I fundamentally started to reshape my views of the CIA and other clandestine services like the NSA. Like most American boys, I grew up idolizing James Bond and viewing spies as the epitome of patriotism and masculinity, even going so far as to apply for the CIA when coming out of college. Yet as I grew older, I started to question why our culture would want young men to glorify a man like James Bond, someone who goes around assassinating people with no consideration for due process, who treats women as objects and glorifies promiscuity, violence, and domination. Then after I read Perkins' book, I started to recognize the true nature of our intelligence agencies and how different that is relative to the one portrayed by Hollywood. That these agents aren't foiling endless terrorist plots in defense of the American and British homelands. Rather, much more truthfully, they're serving as agents of treachery working for the benefit of multinational corporations. And here I'd like to discuss the life of John Perkins and three concepts which he introduced me to. Corporatocracy, economic hitmen, and jackals. Perkins graduated from business school in 1968 and was recruited by a friend of his wife's father, an executive of the NSA who they knew as Uncle Frank. Uncle Frank profiled Perkins with his strong understanding of economics as an ideal candidate for the NSA. Perkins first spent time in the Peace Corps in Ecuador, where he met the vice president of international consulting firm Chaz T. Maine. This VP concurrently acted as a liaison for the NSA. 
Coming out of the Peace Corps, Perkins underwent clandestine training to work for Maine as an economic hitman, or EHM. And this is absurdly what they called the actual position at the time, although EHMs now go by less on-the-nose titles like Chief Economist. In his role as an EHM, Perkins' job was basically to convince presidents of countries with resources that our corporations wanted, namely oil, to accept huge loans from organizations like the World Bank. These loans would then be used to build huge infrastructure projects like power plants. Almost all of the money from these loans would be used to hire American corporations to build the infrastructure, with the rest going to a few wealthy families within those countries. Almost none of the economic benefit accreted to the locals in these countries like Ecuador, Nicaragua, and Saudi Arabia. But of course, the poor get left holding the bag. You see, the EHM's responsibility was to create fabulous financial projections that had no chance of playing out once the construction projects were finished. These countries would then be saddled with huge sums of unpayable debt, debt which the U.S. government would use as leverage to force the leaders of these governments to sell us oil and other resources cheaply, to vote with us on important United Nations matters, and to allow us to build military bases in their backyard. Perkins began to recognize that the global financial and governmental infrastructure was in fact run by what he termed the corporatocracy. He defined the corporatocracy as a vast network of corporations, banks, polluting governments, media outlets, and the rich and powerful people tied to them. Perkins went on to explain that individuals go deeply into debt. Our country and its financial henchmen at the World Bank and its sister institutions coerce other countries to go deeply into debt. Debt enslaves us, and it enslaves those countries. Importantly, Perkins was employed by Maine, never directly by the NSA or any other intelligence agency. This decision came after Kermit Roosevelt helped to orchestrate a coup of democratically elected Iranian Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh in the 1950s. Kermit, the grandson of President Teddy Roosevelt, was a CIA agent sent to organize a series of street riots and violent demonstrations against Mossadegh. This coup was orchestrated because Mossadegh had demanded a fair share of oil revenues go to the Iranian people instead of just oil companies like British Petroleum. The CIA-led coup was successful, and Mossadegh was replaced by pro-American Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi. While this was regarded as a huge success within the CIA at the time, the agency recognized it would have had egg on its face had Roosevelt been caught, and so decided to start outsourcing these acts of treachery to international corporations like Maine. That way, if agents were caught, their actions could be attributed to corporate greed rather than official government policy. 26 years later, in 1979, the CIA success story turned to abject failure when the Shah was pushed out of his country, the U.S. embassy in Iran was overrun, and the leader of the Iranian revolution, Ayatollah Khomeini, was named supreme leader of Iran. Much of the destabilized environment in the Middle East today and the mistrust between the U.S. and Middle Eastern nations can be traced back to these events. But alas, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the intelligence agencies viewed Iran as a huge win and looked to replicate Roosevelt's strategy in order to develop a new, more subtle form of imperialism. Many of the target countries were oil-rich, developing nations around the world. Perkins' career as an EHM took him to places like Indonesia, Panama, Ecuador, and very importantly, Saudi Arabia, 
where he would convince the leaders of those nations to take on huge sums of debt. His team's work in Saudi Arabia, known as the Saudi Arabian Money Laundering Affair, served as a model for future EHM deals, including the one that ultimately failed in Iraq in the 1980s and led to the first Gulf War. As part of the affair, the Saudi royal family agreed to invest billions of dollars of oil income in U.S. securities and to allow the U.S. Department of Treasury to use the interest from those investments to hire U.S. firms to build power and water systems, highways, ports, and cities in the kingdom. In exchange, the U.S. guaranteed that the royal family continued to rule Saudi Arabia. During his career, Perkins began to suffer from deep depression, guilt, and the realization that money and power had trapped him at Maine. This led to his resignation in 1980. The following year, Perkins was deeply troubled when democratically elected leaders from Ecuador, Jaime Rodos, and Panama, Omar Torrijos, died in fiery plane crashes. Both men had incurred the wrath of Washington due to their anti-oil platforms and resistance to U.S. control of the Panama Canal, respectively. Perkins notes that the crashes had all the markings of CIA assassinations. These assassins, also known as jackals, have used murder as a final maneuver time and again to enforce the agenda of the corporatocracy when EHM efforts failed. The murder of these two men, whom Perkins respected and thought of as kindred spirits, led him to start writing Confessions of an Economic Hitman. He started the book four more times over the next 20 years, each time driven by world events. The U.S. invasion of Panama in 1989, the first Gulf War, Somalia, and the rise of Osama bin Laden. However, threats or bribes always convinced him to stop until he finally went forward with the publication in 2004. So then these honest but uncomfortable depiction of historical events naturally leads one to question the depth of deception within the intelligence agencies. Our jackals are willing to assassinate foreign leaders like Honduran President Manuel Zelaya for wanting to raise the minimum wage from 6.5 cents an hour are we really so naive to think that they'd resist de- domestic espionage? Maybe we've just been fed through media and entertainment a lot of what can only be described as propaganda. After all, it's well known that former CIA director Alan Dulles and the author of the James Bond novels, Ian Fleming, were close friends. There's even tantalizing hints, albeit nothing conclusive, that by the early 1960s, the CIA was directly trying to influence Fleming's coverage of the agency and his portrayal of the practice of intelligence more broadly. Then you look at someone like Edward Snowden, who exposed widespread illegal information gathering on U.S. citizens by the NSA. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled seven years later that the NSA had in fact been illegally collecting millions of Americans' telephone records in direct violation of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, actions that may well have been unconstitutional. Yet Snowden still remains in exile in Russia. Why? If we truly have a system that protects whistleblowers, how can we possibly justify this? When you take a step back and look at our intelligence agencies, it becomes increasingly clear that something is deeply broken. When the richest 85 people in the world have more wealth than the poorest 3.5 billion people in the world, something is deeply broken. That means the top 0.0000001% have 
have more wealth than the bottom 50%. What the fuck? We should not have this monstrosity of a corporatocracy with their tentacles in every element of society. We should not have this corrupt economic system held together by a deeply tangled web of three-letter secret agencies acting with impunity from domestic and international law and taking control of an ever-increasing list of civil liberties. Just last week, the Department of Homeland Security announced it has set up a new board to tackle disinformation. The government and their conduits in the media will certainly hammer a message that this is being used to stop acts of violence and to counter disinformation coming from Russia. But we have to go deeper in our thinking and recognize what this will truly create. We are effectively abdicating ownership of open discourse and allowing government agencies to decide for us what constitutes truth. Let's not mince words here. This is a thinly guised excuse for censorship and an infringement on our right to free speech. Guys, wake up. The DHS will be able to censor whoever they want for whatever reason and claim it's being done to prevent violence and disinformation. But censorship, by definition, removes the evidence of what's been said. So how will we possibly be able to hold them accountable for the alleged falsehoods they choose to call disinformation? It's time we stand up, say that enough is enough, and demand far greater transparency from our clandestine services. We deserve a government that works for the betterment of people all over the world, instead of one fattening the pocketbooks of a few multinational corporations and the powerful elites who own them. We deserve a world that is built on a life economy instead of a death economy.